central banks hammer households, but there is an alternative. And Morrison's secret government and the foreign takeover of Australia. Coming up on today's show. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 30th of September 2022. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome, Robbie. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing alternatives to the interest rate hikes that are crushing households. And Morrison's one-man cabinet, another perspective on it, it wasn't just about control over domestic mm. policy, but also foreign policy. Uh, now, don't forget, if you get something out of the show, hit the like button so it gets around more. Subscribe and ring the notification bell for updates and share it as widely as you can. And make comments. And before we start the show proper, uh, a couple of updates you have, Robbie. Yep. Uh, so the last few weeks we've been telling people about the petition on the Parliament House website instigated by the independent journalist Dale Webster from the regional. So that petition is still open for the next few days. Please go there and sign it. It's a petition for a moratorium on regional bank closures and for um, uh, a, a, the, an inquiry into the issue, right, so that the government's forced to look at this again. Uh, and uh, for the current, what they call the regional banking task force, whatever it comes up with to be scrapped. Now, Dale Webster has just written an article for, the in, for Independent Australia, uh, Elisa, and she talks about the importance of this because one of the problems with this task force, it was convened by the government just before the um, election, as an election stunt. Dale sees it that way, the finance sector union sees it that way. Um, uh, she, she said it had the potential to do more harm than good. The, the, the way she describes it, the task force has only two now opposition MPs on it and is stacked with bank representatives who have been given the job in the terms of reference to come up with alternatives to branch banking. One of the many unusual things about this task force is that history has shown that banks have had to be dragged kicking and screaming into the witness box in previous inquiries, but they are now running the show. Worryingly, the last time the federal government listened to banks and endorsed the alternative service models they suggested, regional Australia lost 200 branches virtually overnight when Westpac introduced in-store agency and ANZ, it's what's called local links. In just a matter of years, those were also gone. And Dale objected to the fact that when she wrote to the treasurer, Jim Chalmers, about the issue of bank branch closures, he referred her to the regional banking task force, mm. even though it was now, this, that was a previous government thing. So she said, look, the whole thing's got to be scrapped. Why would we take notice of something that's stacked by the banks anyway? And the good news is that's actually now happened. Right, the, the, the regional banking task force is being um, shut down. The whole thing has to be looked at with fresh eyes. And one of the reasons we strongly support an inquiry, Elisa, is because an inquiry will be an opportunity for our campaign for a postal bank to submit that as an as an as the alternative mm. to the government. When we did the um, the postal bank forum in the parliament in on the seventh of September, our special guest from New Zealand, Matt Robson, uh, noted that when New Zealand set up its postal bank in 2002, Kiwi Bank. The first thing that happened was all the private banks announced a moratorium on bank branch closures, hmm. right? Because for once they had to compete. They were, they were colluding with each other to shut branches. And 
um, knowing that everyone wanted, they all wanted to shut branches, etc. So there was no competition in that area. Suddenly they were in, they were in competition with a public bank and they, they changed that policy. That's what we need in Australia. So a postal bank would make sure that every post office will always provide guaranteed face-to-face -face banking services for everybody and it'll put the wind up the private banks and realise, well, we better stop shutting branches mm -hmm. so much, right? So anyway, that's why it's very important. If you haven't signed this, this parliamentary petition yet, please do. The immediate, people say, What's, why would, what do you get out of signing a petition? Well, the petition's not going to change the policy. What this petition does, though, because it's a formal one to the parliament, when it closes in a few days, mm -hmm. the government must respond to it, right? And we've already... Dale's work has already engaged the Treasurer Jim Chalmers in this issue. He will have to be get deeper into it, right? And that'll help build the case for what we're trying to achieve. So that's one thing, Elisa, mm -hmm. just a, um, a shorter announcement. We put out a press release yesterday about the new inquiry into Project Iron Boomerang, which um, was also moved in the Parliament this month by Senator Malcolm Robertson, backed by Senator Glenn Stirl from the Labor Party, who actually said the Labor Party supports the policy, mm. right? So there's going to be a, a one-year references inquiry into Project Iron Boomerang. However, the submission period is very short. It closes on the 20th of October. This is crucial. Now, we'll put the links below to our previous work on Project Iron Boomerang. We have a four-minute video that explains it, and we have the hour-long interview that Glenn Isherwood did for Citizens Insight with the visionary behind the project, Shane Condon. Anyone who's interested in this question of infrastructure for Australia, please look at it and make a submission. So we're not, this is not a general call for everybody to flood this inquiry with submissions. We want qualified people with something to offer, insights. If you got, but even just in, when I say qualified, don't don't overinterpret that. If you have a burning insight you want to make, mm. please do make the submission. You got till the twentieth of October to do it. We'll link to the press release. That links to the to the Parliament website. It's very important. This kind of public engagement mm. um, is one of my favourite themes. This is how you, the public, get to shape mm. government. I mean, right? even if you live in one of the areas intersecting this sure. line, Boomerang, we're calling up all the councils in these areas. I mean, the support for it is actually huge. It's untapped. Think about the potential if you want to contribute. But if you know engineers that have ideas in this area, ask them to contribute. If you know people with 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 who have economic uh, insights, ask them to contribute submissions mm. to this inquiry. It's very, very important. Yep. Right. So with that done, um, our first topic, central banks hammer households, but there is an alternative. Uh, now, first, I want to preface this discussion, however, with a financial update. Uh, briefly, there are warnings across the globe from official layers and from commentators. Um, the US is close to reaching the third consecutive quarter of near, near, uh, zero, I should say, to negative growth. So, you know, deep recession. Europe, in Europe, people are openly, um, official layers are openly saying they're in a deep recession. Uh, it's forecast to continue. The Bank of England has pronounced the United Kingdom in deep and lasting recession. And economists and other voices, uh, for instance, Dr. Doom, Nouriel Rabini sees a long and ugly US recession ahead, including a 30 to 40% collapse of the Standard & Poor's 500 stock market index. Um, you have 
uh, Bank of America strategist Michael Hartnett warning of a big bond price drop disrupting credit flows, comparing the market to 1987, uh, which was a comparison also made by uh, renowned economist David Rosenberg. He said it would be led by an aggressive Fed and surging bond yields, only worse with uh, various other new instabilities added into the equation today. Um, This one was interesting. Howard University economist William Spriggs is warning of a recession, saying uh, the US economy, he said, is like a four-engine airplane with only one engine that works, which is households, and which most experts now want to turn off, turn off that engine, because of the rate hikes that are crushing households, which we're going to talk about a little bit more uh, later on. Now, of course, the other big crisis hitting the headlines in the last couple of days is the pound sterling crisis. Uh, which hit the UK after the new government. The pound is getting pounded. (laughs) The new government of Liz Truss announced $45 billion worth of tax cuts and it wasn't clear where the funding would come from. And these are going to um, let the big earners, of course, off the hook. It's even going to end the post-2008, well, end the restriction on post-2008 bank Banker bonuses. Some, some, Liz Truss is such a genius that somehow she thought the secret to Britain's economic success is to let the bankers go back to having their unbridled bonuses. Because that <laughs> worked so well last time. Yes, exactly. But the situation has just um, gone from the sublime to the ridiculous in the wake of this because, I mean, basically, the Bank of England is now running simultaneously quantitative tightening and quantitative easing. So this is a first for the books um, because the Bank of England, after the carnage happening um, not only with the sterling collapse but also the collapse of bond values held in particular by a lot of UK pension funds that were getting margin calls on the borrowed money that they'd used to invest in those bonds. So the Bank of England decided they had to step in to buy those government bonds to prevent dysfunction in the market and they referred to the risk to financial stability that this represented. It's one, the UK has 1.4 trillion pounds in these pension funds that are mostly invested in these bonds, but they don't, they don't, it's not just in directly invested, it's through leverage. These are leveraged investments in the bonds and it's an enormous problem, and that's why the the, um, the intervention, but as you said, the intervention to save the bonds mm. is coming at the same time, that, which is quantitative easing, is coming at the same time. They're, tight, they're, they're trying to tighten up. By raising interest by rates. By raising interest rates. And, of course, the IMF came out and said, you have to reconsider this because we can't be putting out all this money at a time when we're trying to tackle inflation with the monetary policy tightening and so forth. Um, Now, there'd already been discussions going on prior to Liz Truss becoming the new Prime Minister about further financial market deregulation, but um, this new government's taking it to new heights. The new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, assured the City of London uh, after in his first address last week um, that his first and top priority was a Big Bang 2.0, which means the Big Bang was the original um, 1980s massive deregulation of everything financial. Yeah, the UK's deregulation of its financial system in the 1980s, called the Big Bang, set the tone for the global deregulation wave that started. But Worldwide, yeah. the, the people who did it, like um, uh, Lord Nigel Lawson, who was Margaret Thatcher's Chancellor of the Exchequer, 
in 2012, mm -hmm. he was one of the people who came out and said this was a mistake because mm. that led to the, to the scrapping of Glass-Steagall, this massive explosion in speculation, etc. So he called it a mistake. These people are ignoring that kind of experience mm. and say, no, let's double down on that. And people like him, and there was a massive push in the UK, which we intersected at the time, to bring back Glass-Steagall for that very yeah, reason, yeah, that this yeah. was evidently, you know, obviously a mistake. But Prime Minister Truss and Kuateng, the Chancellor, in 2012, they actually co-authored, and with a number of others, including Priti Patel and um, um, Rish, uh, Sunak, Rishi Sunak, Rishi Sunak. Um, they co-authored this radical free market call. It's, it's actually a, a book um, calling for smaller government, lower taxes and a deregulation blitz called Britannia Unchained. Um, and they said in this book that the UK was being held back by a, quote, bloated state, high taxes and excessive regulation, and that they were... Um, going to take down as many rules and regulations as possible to allow complete freedom of competition, which, you know, because it has worked so well to date. Um, now, The Guardian had a headline, Has Liz Truss Handed Power Over to the Extreme Neoliberal Think Tanks? And there's actually been quite a bit of reporting in recent months about this small select group of these far rights within the conservative movement that are hijacking to take over government. Uh, but this Guardian article reported that many of Truss's advisory staff are sourced from various think tanks like the Institute of Economic Affairs, Centre for Policy Studies, the Adam Smith Institute. These are all um, the inner circles of the Mont Pelerin Society uh, global think tank yeah. that set out to take over economic policy after World War II and you know, manage think tanks across the globe. Now, I need to make a comment. I want people to, to, to think about this in historical terms, Elisa, because Margaret Thatcher was the um, standards, the trendsetter in this area, right? But what Margaret Thatcher represented, she, the, this, this organisation you just referenced, the Mont Pelerin Society, was set up in 1947 <coughs> to chip away at and dismantle what was known as the post-war economic settlement, which had been defined by people like Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Ben Chifley and John Curtin in Australia, Clement Attlee in the United Kingdom. Now, back then, it was called things like the welfare state, and that has now got a dirty name, but it didn't have a dirty name back then, right? The British, um, the British soldiers got back from World War II and they quickly voted Churchill out, got Clement Attlee in there, and he set up the National Health Service, and he, he nationalised the Bank of England, which had been a private central bank for 200 years. He nationalised it because he was trying to copy what Australia had done. But essentially it was this idea that the government has to have a role in the financial system, right? And this is, we know this history so well because the, the, the best and most explicit fights were here in Australia around the Commonwealth Bank. But, it, and, but it's also what Roosevelt did with the New Deal. And so these people represented a different view. They represented the 19th century British liberal view that private power, private financial power, must be supreme above government. Mm. And, and Prime Minister Gladstone had experienced this when he tried to set up a postal bank in the mid-19th century. He said this was the biggest fight he ever had and the, and the nub of the issue was the money power must remain supreme and unquestioned, mm. right? They, they did not want any kind of government role in the economy. So that's the extreme position. The, the East India Company, which was the basis of the British Empire, was a private corporation, right, which eventually the British government had to take over. But it, 
that they, Britain built an empire as a private corporation. And these 19th century liberal economists all worked for the East India Company, mm. coming up with this garbage economics to justify this looting, raping, pillaging world's biggest monopoly, right? Um, all in the name of free trade, etc. And it never was. The whole thing is that everything you learn about economics was a total sham. But anyway, 47, they, they thought, oh no, we've lost the fight here. We've got... We've got a, a new consensus around the world that the government must play a role in the economy, right, to create the, 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 the structure that allows people to, um, uh, the private sector to work better, right? And that period of the Bretton Woods system, etc., was the biggest period of, of economic productivity growth in the world history. So Thatcher was the tool of these people to take it down. Mm. But because... What she was trying to take down was something that was fresh in people's minds as being important. She, she was both really radical, but she also had to be somewhat smart in how she argued for it, right? And there was all that, and people will remember some of this history, and she, would, she said some extreme things like, there's no such thing as society. Mm. She used to quote Hayek a lot. Back in, um, once she was in government for a while and there was high unemployment, she was asked about Hayek and she disowned him on public, t on, on television. Hayek was one of the, the founders. The Austrian school. The, the Austrian school, right? But she had to be smart. Now, when she left government, um, and eventually Tony Blair became Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Thatcher was asked, what's her greatest legacy? And she said, my, my greatest legacy is Tony Blair. <laughs> Tony Blair, why? Because Tony Blair, in economic terms, continued her policy. He didn't change what she'd done. But you've just quoted... Liz Truss and uh, Quasi, what's his name, 14. right? Writing in 2011 or 2012 12. that Britain, they describe the Thatcher Blair Britain. Blair didn't undo what Thatcher did. They described that the, the Britain created by Thatcher and Blair as a bloated state, high taxes and excessive <laughs> regulation. Do you know how extreme that makes them? These people oh, in yeah. charge of the United Kingdom right now are absolutely Burn them down, radical extremists, economic extremists. They are nuts. Mm. They are, we, we have built a political movement in Australia by pointing out to people that everything they were told about neoliberal economics 30 years ago hasn't come true. Mm. Right? These, these idiots are so nuts, they're doubling down on all that. Well, this is how George Monbiot described it in this Guardian article. He said, because we're talking about these Montpellier and think tanks and, you know, Institute of Economic Affairs, which was Thatcher's baby, um... He said, now the think tanks don't need a roundabout route. They are no longer lobbying government. They are the government. Liz Truss is their candidate. And the bottom line is they're not pushing economics. They are handing Britain back over to the City of London. Mm. Right? Yes. They're, they're like, drop all pretense mm. now because it was ne it's never about economics. It's never about free trade and free markets and making things work better. It's about making sure the private interests, the same people who think exactly like the East India Company thought, who still run rural Britain through the City of London, have no obstacles to their total control of society. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and, and those things that people are aptly set up must be dismantled because they get in the way of that. Yeah. Now, coming to Australia... Uh, because what we had in the 1981 Campbell Committee inquiry was the same raft yes. of deregulatory policies that were implemented and we followed suit with the UK and the Big Bang and so forth, because our, as we always our, do. Because our treasurer who set it up, John Howard, is also one of <clears> the... <throat> now, he was a smarter politician than these people. So, he, like Thatcher, he knew how to argue it in a certain way. But at his core, he was just as radical as Thatcher. Mm. on this stuff. He just had to do it in a 
smarter way. And and that Campbell committee was advised by, I mean, Milton Friedman came over here yep. to advise it. So the, these are the same Austrian school economists that you were just talking about. Um, now, so that Campbell system financial inquiry in the final report stripped any capacity of governments to regulate finance and banking. Um, now, Evan Jones, who's a political economist at the University of Sydney, has written extensively about this. He said that prior to that committee report, lending criteria were strictly and tightly controlled. And we want to talk about that a little bit because in regard to the headline of this segment, um, Australia does have other options to tackle inflation. Uh, other than the raising of interest rates. Other than exactly the one blunt instrument that the RBA claims to have. And the Federal Reserve and <clears throat> the Bank of England, etc. And the key to doing it is to, rather than deregulate, like the UK is discussing right now, is to re-regulate. And this was raised in an AFR article on the 11th of September by finance professor at the University of Melbourne, Kevin Davis. And he talked about, and you see it in the headline, we'll put up there, credit regulation. So he talked about credit regulation. You'll see that in the headline up on the screen. Um, and he said that reducing the spending ability of households was never the major channel for monetary policy. Once, he said, it was done by regulating credit. And that mainly impacted business investment, not households. But today, he said, it's suddenly accepted that choking economic growth by, quote, crunching the budgets of households with mortgages is the only way to do it. But he, as he explained, we used to control bank lending itself using direct controls over the quantity of lending that was done and by making changes in bank capital requirements by changing risk weighting or required capital ratios. So what he's saying, Elisa, and what we're trying to explain here, just for people to understand. We're, we're now, there's, um, uh, Australians are paying something like, since April, 30% more on their mortgages because the Reserve Bank says it has to crush inflation and it's copying what the Federal Reserve is doing and the Bank of England are doing and there's inflation. Oh, we have to crush it by raising interest rates. We have to crush it by crushing households. It's like, you know, an effective way of fighting a fire is to have one of these, um, there's kind of technologies where you can throw a bomb or something at the fire and take all the oxygen away, mm. right? So they're like, this is like a fire in a city where some genius says, oh, let's drop one of those bombs that takes all the oxygen away. We'll save the city by killing all the people in it, by taking all the oxygen away. It'll kill the fire, but it'll kill everybody else as well, right? And this is the economic equivalent of that. It's, it's absolutely nuts. And why, why, why is this the equivalent? Because... We have an economy that's based on consumer spending. The, yeah. These geniuses who believe in the hidden hand of the free market say, oh, don't direct anything. Let the consumers spend as they will. Let, let multinational corporations through their marketing nudge them to, expend, to spend as they want. That'll determine where our economy goes. And then when, when it gets too much inflation, we'll crush their spending, right? Whereas before, and, and, and people go, well, what else can we do? Oh, we've got to raise interest rates to be higher than the inflation rate or else you won't control inflation. No, there was another way. They used to turn off the tap. They would say to the banks, this was for decades, stop lending so much in that area, stop lending so much in that area. And what they should have done in Australia in the last, like in 2004 when it was clear we had a property bubble, they should have said to the banks, stop lending for mortgages like you are. Stop lending for investors into mortgages. 
into, 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 home, into property. Just stop doing it. We are going to make you stop doing that kind of lending. That'll take the heat out of that part of the economy. And then they can do, conversely say, here, we need more manufacturing in Australia. Lend more in that area. We will incentivise more. Than, that's what we used mm. to do when we had a regulated system. But these people like Thatcher and Howard came along and turned regulation into a dirty word. Right, It was pernicious propaganda. They brainwashed a generation of people. And I'll say it again. You're old, anyone who's old enough to remember when it started and now, remember the promises you were given and look where we got now and, th and, and ask yourself honestly, has it worked? <laughs> and the answer is no. And so you don't say, oh, well, what new idea do we dream up? Go back to when it worked. Now, a similar commentary to that Kevin Davis article was um, veteran... Uh, Sydney Morning Herald reporter and economics editor Ross Gittins in a 19th September article and he also said, look, this inflation wave has, quote, revealed the limitations and crudity of the main instrument we've used to manage the macro economy for the past 40 years, monetary policy, the manipulation of interest rates by the central bank. And he went on to say that the RBA's control over interest rates gives it direct influence only on the spending of households. And then later on he says, so it's households that are picking up the tab for the RBA's solution to the inflation problem. And he, he described this as a massive transfer of wealth from households to big business profits. Yeah. Um, now, these are some of the topics that need to be taken up in the RBA review, the review of the Reserve Bank that is going on at the moment. There's a monetary panel that has been established on that and they've just put out an issues paper on the 15th of September. Um, but they're accepting also public submissions until the end of October on that. Which we'll make, we'll, we'll make one. <clears throat> and, and the essence is what I ranted about just a second ago, right? Um, the way they describe it in dry economic terms is we once regulated credit by... Um, Quantity, mm. now we regulate it by price. Mm. We've got to raise interest rates. Yeah. And it's not it's it's a disaster for everybody, right? They're deliberately hammering households to try and solve the problem. Don't go back to properly investing in the economy. And what's our number one policy? A public bank that yep. can be a vehicle for that investment. Yep. Right? That's what we need to do. Anything else will backfire. Yep. So we'll move on to the next topic. Morrison's secret government and the foreign takeover of Australia. So we want to talk about, we've talked about this on the show before, you can go back and see uh, the previous presentations. But <clears throat> one of the things is that this, you know, his machinations to put himself in control of multiple government ministries was not just about the control of domestic, economic and other policy, um, but to capture the foreign policy agenda yep. that was afoot on the broader world stage, which was to isolate China and Russia and basically pursue war. Yeah, and can I just observe, Elisa, we've now discovered what he was doing, right? He was secretly the, the minister in all these ministries that gave him all this control. That was the time when he said the, that we were, we were the democracies fighting the axis of autocracy. Yeah, exactly. He, he by the definition, was the most... Auto autocratic leader we've had and completely secretly. Yeah, exactly. So he had established what is called the, the Cabinet Office Policy Committee and this was his little cabinet of one. So he was the only permanent member in it but he co-opted other people in it so that any particular meeting held under that imprimatur 
could be kept secret as Cabinet in confidence. Yeah, which doesn't get released for 20 years. Exactly. So National Cabinet, for instance, was convened as a subcommittee of that COPC. Rex, Rex Patrick waged a war on this. It didn't succeed. But he was trying to get the committee, the minutes of this National Committee, mm. National Cabinet, which used to be called the Coalition of Australian Governments, Council of Australian Governments. And no, they said, no, it, 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 it comes under the same rules as, as Cabinet secrecy, which you can't access for, for 20 years. Mm. Why? Because Morrison just unilaterally declared that everything he participated in was essentially yeah. all these people, whether an individual or a group like all mm. the premiers, being part of his Cabinet Office Policy Committee. Yep. And it came under that. Now, the Guardian actually, and we've reported on in this week's alert service, so do read that for more detail. Uh, we'll make a link to that. Um, but the Guardian put out a, a FOI, Freedom of Information Request, for all of the minutes of this Cabinet Office Policy Committee. And it was reported back to them that there were 739 minutes, but only 66 of those minutes referred to Minute, national... Minutes as in recordings of meetings, not, yeah. not time. That's right. Only 66 of them were either national cabinet or other subcommittee meetings and there were eight related to a task force. No one knows what the other 665 minutes were for. So, you know, what meetings were so co-opted under that? Morrison is having at least 665 discussions, decisions. And some of them might be, you know, minuted the same meeting a number of times by different people, but nonetheless. Um, so that's what he's doing. Mm. And uh, we don't get to know at all. Yeah. And you know who else doesn't get to know? His colleagues. Yeah. One person that would know is yep. who we get, the guy we're going to talk about now, Andrew Shearer, who, according to the New Daily on the 21st September, was said to be present at most of these COPC meetings because he was Cabinet Secretary before he moved to the Office of National Intelligence. And he was said to set the agenda of those Cabinet meetings. Now, he had been much earlier, he's, you know, played a lot of roles, but he's been National Security Advisor to John Howard, Tony Abbott, and played advisory roles to other members of Parliament, Premiers. He was a former Director of Studies at the Lowy Institute and played a role in circulating scare stories about China yep. and was Canberra's principal liaison with the Biden administration to arrange the AUKUS deal. Essentially, Elisa, this guy comes under the category of spook. When he was first appointed as the top um, intelligence analyst in Australia, as the head of the Office of National Intelligence, um, the Labor Party attacked his appointment as partisan because he's a liberal hack, right? And the, so the Labor Party was, was outraged that he got this job. But he's one of the people that we've identified helped steer this really radical departure for Australia from having a a developing um, economic relationship with China when suddenly 2016-2017 we just diverted to treating China like the enemy mm. and he helped to steer it. And there's a small band of these people that took over government to do that. We, we put him in the category of a United States agent of influence, right? This is what we mean by the, the foreign takeover of Australia because mm. it was never in our interest. We have, we have a... Um, a trade relationship with China, which is so beneficial to Australia, it's not funny, right? It was in 2019, it was 80 billion dollars in our favour, or 70 billion dollars in our favour. That's already already a massive surplus. It's now 120 billion dollars in our favour, thanks to the combination of the price of the commodities and the lower Australian dollar, etc. 
right? Um, this is incredible how much we've benefited from this, yet we're trying to blow it up. Mm. We're trying to declare war with a country that if we went to war with it, would, would annihilate us, mm. right? For no good reason. He helped steer this. Yeah. And the only reason we've identified why we did it, we did it to march in lockstep with the United States. And these are the people that made sure we did. This is the foreign takeover of Australia. Mm. They screamed foreign interference and foreign influence and claimed China did it. No, they did it through these means. But take stock, people. He did it where he, before Shearer, the Office of Cabinet Secretary was, a, was an elected parliamentarian. So the governing party, someone from that party who didn't get the job as a minister, would get the job of Cabinet Secretary, right? So at least they're responsible to the rest of the party. Morrison changed it so that, get rid of the elected guy, this guy becomes his Cabinet Secretary, and he and this guy that we've identified with this pedigree are doing this takeover, setting himself up in this autocratic way, secret ministries, etc. Wake up and smell the napalm before it lands on us. Mm, yep. Right? These are the and and the fact that they're the ones that have screamed at you about China, the axis of autocracies. This is what they were doing to our country. This is the foreign takeover. Yeah, and in fact, using the fear factor of China might invade to justify a lot of this and divert from it, which of is course. the way that these things work. But that whole ball of wax that you're talking about of these, um, this influence network, I want to give a few highlights of a yep. new article series by our researcher, Melissa Harrison, and we'll make, again make this available um, on our website. But um, she's exposed the Lowy Institute, which is a, a key element, another unelected organisation running our foreign policy. Um, it acts in a slightly more subtle way perhaps sophisticated way to Aspie. Yeah, it is more sophisticated. It's seen as more mainstream. Aspie's seen as mainstream, but Aspie's really feral. Lowy is seen as just this dignified think tank. Mm, in the background. But, and but it has taken control of our <coughs> foreign policy. Yeah. Um, so I'll just give a few highlights of that. I mean, but the, the, the bottom line is this outfit has played a central role in creating a body of propaganda to um, create support and for the, for the rules-based order, essentially, and a platform for US and UK officials to promote their foreign policy here in Australia. And the other way around. Oh, no, and I'll talk, talk about it now, but this is, this is quite important. The head of Lowy keeps writing these articles saying, we need the United States to stay engaged here. In fact, Lowy was most freaked out when Donald Trump was the president and talking about downsizing yeah. America's role. And... It's outfits like Lowy that have tried to, that have sent the message to Washington. No, 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 we need you now. Our New Zealand um, cousins, they're happy to say, except until this person Jacinda Ardern took over. Mm. But they were happy to say for thirty years, we, we're we're okay being independent. We're mm. not afraid of being invaded. But in Australia, we're all suddenly big tough Australians. We're terrified, and we're telling the Americans, oh, we're doing this damsel in distress thing. You've got to be here to save us. Save us from what? Right, but that's what Lowy does. It's quite pernicious, and um, it's unfortunately very effective. Mm. Now, here's a good insight into it. Kirk Campbell, this is Biden, the Biden administration's Asia Tsar, and of course the guy who came up with the whole Asia Pivot idea. And uh, this was in an interview with the Lowy Institute in 2021. He said, "No think tank has done more than the Lowy Institute in advancing how to think about Asia, how to think about the Indo-Pacific." how to think about Australia's role in the world. So, yeah, teamed with Aspie and the media, this has become a very powerful force. Yeah. And um, 
Kurt Campbell was an international fellow with Lowy, I should add. Another insight is the fact that it was the Lowy Institute that hosted the secret meeting which was reported exposed by veteran Australian journalist Max Such in April 2021 in an AFR article which we've talked about before where senior foreign affairs and intelligence officials briefed a group of diplomats, intelligence analysts, non-government analysts and academics that the government intended to pursue a course of hostility towards China and they openly acknowledged this would provoke trade penalties from China and yet they willingly went ahead with it anyway. And this meeting was in 2017. So, so the fact that we're highlighting the fact that it happened at Lowy is, makes, is significant. It tells you something about Lowy. What is it where the people, the decision makers in our government had a secret meeting at Lowy to brief people and said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to follow this United States path. We're going to get much more hostile to China and China will retaliate mm -hmm. with trade. So yeah. in 2020, when China did retaliate with trade and, and, and where our politicians were all we're squealing, so shocked. oh, this is terrible. Mm. No, no, we, we went into this with our eyes open. Um, the fact that it, it only, I have to highlight this, it only came out because Max Such, who dominated the press, the, the, um, the press gallery in Canberra in the 70s and 80s, he was a giant of the Australian media. But he, like a lot of old-timers, and we've interviewed John... I shouldn't call them old-timers. I hate being called that. <laughs> um, you know, we've interviewed John Lander on our show, right? There's John Menadue, the former top public servant in Australia, has this thing called Pearls and Irritations, where a lot of retired people mm. who used to run Australia back in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s, they've come out of retirement to make a lot of commentary now and say, this is nuts. Well, Max was a journo, an investigative journo, one of the best journos in Australian history, and he, he decided to think to ask the question... How did it come to this? Mm. And he wrote this explosive series in 2021, and that was his key piece of factual information that none of the other journos in Australia, operating in Australia at the moment, bothered to even ask about, let alone come up with. Mm -hmm. It took an old timer coming out of retirement to expose this, yep. right? Because everyone is in on this now the think tanks, the media, etc. Yeah. Um, and everyone thinks oh, they've lost any capacity for independent thinking that even media people in the 80s used to have. Mm. Now, the Lowy Institute claims to be independent and, you know, foster all these different yeah, voices well, in its forum, etc. But its research completely aligns with the foreign policy agenda of the US and UK governments. It's a key member of the Council of Councils. <laughs> this is a grouping of the world's most powerful foreign policy think tanks founded by the New York Council of Foreign Relations. And they work together to ensure, this is how they put it, consensus building among influential opinion leaders. When I hear about Council of Councils, I think about the, uh, the movie Eyes Wide Shut <laughs> and everyone in a circle with their masks on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds exactly right. Um, and speaking of which, the revolving door appointments um, with this, within this powerful network um, of this Council of Councils intersects with Lowy, um, intersects other think tanks, um, the um, Office of National uh, Intelligence as well here in Australia and other global think tanks like Brookings Institution, Centre for Strategic and International Studies, the CSIS, and has intense interaction also with US policymakers, you know, specifically in this recent period. The funding of Lowy Institute comes from the Australian government they get direct funding from ASIO and the Office of National Intelligence, plus various separate government contracts from government departments and its own annual membership fees. 
um, and it, it prides itself on doing these different um, projects such as mapping foreign assistance in the Pacific to point out who China is aiding among the Pacific nations, etc. And it's Asia Power Index, which it invented its own metrics to portray how the US is ahead of China in virtually every category, including things like economic relationships <laughs> in the region, everything except for economic capability, where China's only just slightly ahead of the US, apparently. Um, it's also renowned and people, various uh, outlets have exposed its push polling that Lowy does, um, supposedly to track changes in Australian attitudes, particularly to China, but on other foreign policy issues. Australian attitudes have changed, but this, but in the, low, the Lowy poll is always cited for that. So 40% of Australians were worried about China in 2017. Now it's over 80%. Um, and so that, that's a dramatic shift, but there is a there is a margin of exaggeration there when you look at the actual polling they do. It's the equivalent of it's as blat almost as blatant as saying Xi Jinping is known for eating babies for breakfast. What do you think of him? Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, stuff like. like well, do you react positive, positively yeah. to him? Yes or no? Oh no! It's I, I'll, I'll give you the serious one. It was literally a question like um, China has because China uh, let the coronavirus get out and destroy the world. How do you feel about China now? <laughs> right? And stuff like, that's called push polling. Yeah. Right? That's, what it, that's what it does. Yeah. Um, so I recommend, highly recommend people to read this. You can contact us for a copy of the alert if you haven't already as a sample. No, it is very important. We document <clears> this stuff for, for a good reason. And, and um, over the last couple of years, as we've been pushing back hard on this, Melissa's research, has been incredibly important for that. It actually identifying the players who have taken Australia down this path. One final comment: I asked, um, uh, a, you know, a veteran diplomat, John Lander, about the fact that you got the Lowy Institute now playing this really dominant role in shaping Australia's foreign policy. I said, when you were in DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs, did you have the equivalent then? And he was, um, he really reacted. He said, hell no. There was once a time when these departments, like DFAT, were very, very jealously guarded their expertise. Mm. All the expertise was in the department. Mm -hmm. And because it was in the department, that made it truly objective. They didn't do it. They got a salary from the Australian taxpayer. And you had a broad cross-section of expertise and opinion in that department from which to act on what they did. Now that's been gutted yeah. and essentially outsourced, outsourced to this, funded by a billionaire named Frank Lowy, who and, and with uh, all these influences channeling what the US wants Australia to think, mm. right? And the United Kingdom as well. That's, that's the foreign policy takeover of our country, um, Elisa. Yep. And go back to what we, you know, the, the Morrison's role in it. And the worst part of all of it, Albanese has attacked Morrison, he's, he's, he's a new broom sweeping. In lots of other, in lots of areas of the government, he will not touch this yeah. area, and he will not touch Andrew Shearer, even though Labor attacked his appointment a few years ago. He will not touch him. And other appointments in his direct yep. department. Yep, he will not. He will not touch them. Why? Because he's too scared of the government of the opposition accusing him of being uh, disloyal to the United States and weak on China. We we are that subservient to Anglo-American foreign mm. policy now. Yep. So that's what we need to change. That's what we're here for. Now, don't forget to check in the box below to do your part in making that change, um, signing that petition and getting on to 
any uh, locals about the Iron Boomerang if you're in one of those areas or if you know anyone with expertise in that field. So that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Lisa. See you next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.